The Mount of Transfiguration is a well-known story to Christians. But on that mountain is a further verifying of the identity of Jesus Christ by none other than the Father, as he declares, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Today on Walk in Truth Radio. Welcome to Walk in Truth with Michael Lance. Walk in Truth is a ministry of Living Truth Christian Fellowship. It's our goal to build up believers and to reach out with God's truth to all people. And now, here's Pastor Michael. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 9, and the title of the message this morning is Investigating the Transfiguration. The Transfiguration of Jesus is an amazing event, and so I feel like we need to really investigate what took place here in this chapter. And, you know, when I was in high school... Uh, back when we, when we got off our dinosaur and went to class. No, I'm just kidding. I rode a horse and buggy, okay? Uh, but we had what we called journalism class. If you wanted to write on the newspaper in school, you had to take a journalism class first. Um, I believe that the majority of those reporting the news today have never taken a journalism class, okay? Because in a journalism class, you learn that when you're reporting something, that you are to stick to the facts, the facts of what took place. You need to be able to describe who was involved, what took place, where it happened, and when it happened. And you were not allowed to stick your opinions in a newspaper article. Now, once in a while, if you're a really good writer uh, on the school paper, then they would let you do an article, and that was with a, remember this, a byline? And when you saw that byline, you knew that that reporter was adding in their editorial to what the event was, and they were adding in their opinions, and it was okay because you knew that. And so uh, you learn the difference between a news article and an editorial. I think that's pretty mixed up today. But we're going to approach this a little bit uh, in the way of investigating this event, the transfiguration of Jesus in Mark chapter 9. And first, we're going to look at it in an investigative way and, and, and the way that we would if we were going to do a news article because we want to know the facts of what took place here. Now, if you remember back in Mark 8, we saw that Jesus had begun to prepare his disciples for his eventual departing from them. Jesus had shown them the kingdom of God, and he'd done that by his teaching. He'd done it by miraculous deeds, and he'd done that by giving them the power to do some of those same miraculous deeds. And you remember that as we've gone through the book of Mark. But then he came to a point where he asked them a point-blank question. And that question was, who do you say that I am? Now, that was a critical question because if the disciples could not answer that question, then they would never be able to accomplish the mission that Jesus had for them. Then Peter, by the revelation of God, answered, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one. That's all that that means in that term, the Christ. So there it was. After around three years of hanging out together, the truth was finally revealed. Jesus was the chosen one. He was the Messiah. He was the Christ. However, the, the understanding that the disciples had of 
what that really meant of what would take place when the Messiah appeared in Israel was quite different than what was going to take place. Instead of the Messiah overthrowing Rome and sitting on the throne of David, which, by the way, is what any good young Jewish male would be thinking at the time, Jesus says this to them back in Mark 8, verses 31-32. He says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now, when we read this, we often don't really look closely at verse 32. If you, if you have it open there, look at that. Verse 32, it says, and he was stating the matter plainly. In other words, he wasn't speaking in parables anymore as he did earlier. He wasn't trying to hide anything. He was speaking it out. He was saying, this is what's going to happen, and he was speaking plainly to those disciples. Now, this is certainly not something the disciples wanted to hear. So Peter spoke up and began to rebuke Jesus. Well, you know how well that went, right? Uh, Peter, lesson number one, do not rebuke God. Okay, and so uh, that didn't go over real well. But an interesting thing, then Jesus called the crowd to himself, not just the disciples, but the whole crowd that was there, and he made this incredible statement. So let's look at Mark chapter 9, verse 1. It says, And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, I want you to put yourself in their place. The whole crowd, not just the disciples. A lot of these people hadn't been hanging out with Jesus for three years. Some had. Some had followed him everywhere. But there may have been people that, maybe this is the first time they'd heard Jesus speak. And they heard him make this statement. Imagine, what does he mean by this? You know, when you get excited, they might not even have noticed the word some. They may have just heard the rest. And they might have gotten really excited thinking that, well, Jesus must be proclaiming that he's soon going to throw off the oppression of Rome and that he's going to set up his kingdom and this earth soon or even immediately. And that they would see Israel once again rule with the glory that they had at the time of Solomon. That's what they were looking forward to. They might be believing that the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Joel and Daniel and the others and, and thinking this is going to be fulfilled, all those things that those guys talked about. It's going to happen. That might have been what they were thinking. Or they might have been thinking, as so often that happened, Who is this guy? Who is this man that makes these bold statements? And they might have been just thoroughly confused. Well, let's read on, verse 2. Six days later, now I want to clear something up right off the bat because we always have these people that look for these little things in the Bible. And it seems like I always get one, doesn't it, when every time I'm teaching here. And and they're going to go, well, wait, wait, wait. In Luke, it says eight days. The Bible, you can't trust it. Oops, boy, I smacked my thing there. All right, you can't trust the Bible. Look, it has all these mistakes in it. Well, once again, you know, this is not a mistake. Uh, it's, it's pretty easily 
uh, figured out when you think of the fact that oftentimes when we talk about, when you're talking about an event, let's say that you're describing an event that took place, you might include the day of the event, uh, and then you may include the day that you started out. And so it's about eight days is actually the term. And so it's just that in describing the event, the day that that statement was made and the day that this event took place are included, so that's eight days instead of six. And of course, in Mark's, he's just saying six days. He doesn't include those two days, six days later. Six days later, or eight days later, if you include the two, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and he brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And if you're interested in this, um, some of the old uh, commentaries might say Mount Tabor. That's probably not correct. Um, it's probably Mount Hermon because that was closer to Caesarea Philippi. By the way, some of those sites that come from early commentaries, and apparently when you go to Israel, which we're hopefully we're going to be doing here in 2018, um, you know, a lot of the sites that are, you know, they say this happened there, that happened there, you can't always trust it because it was done by, um, well, from what I understand, some of the sites were chosen by Constantine's mother who just walked around to these sites and said, I feel like this is where it happened. Okay, and that's why we want to dig in and investigate to find out really where they are. So Mount Hermon was much closer to Caesarea Philippi where they were coming from. Most likely there, that was the high mountain. Well, Luke informs us that there was a reason that he took the boys with him, the three boys. I say that because oftentimes they act like little boys, didn't they? Not grown men, but they were pretty young. But he took the boys with him and he took them for a purpose and that was to pray with him. Now, typically, when he took the boys to pray with him, what did they do? They usually nodded off and fell asleep. They didn't hang with Jesus very well and stay up all night and pray with him. But once again, that's what happened here. They fell asleep while they were praying. And when they awoke, they were going to see something that they could never, ever have imagined. Now, why did Jesus choose Peter, James, and John? Well, I think if you follow the New Testament, it's pretty clear that Peter, James, and John were kind of the inner circle with Jesus. They were always with him. They stayed the closest to him. And as in any group um, that follows a particular leader, there are people that are closer and people that are in that next group. And it's just a pretty typical thing that happens. They were the closest ones to him. But Jesus needed three with him. Why did he need three? because he knew it was gonna take place. And he needed three eyewitnesses to what was going to take place. You see, in the Jewish culture, if there were two to three eyewitnesses, that confirmed the matter. And so Jesus needed three eyewitnesses with him to confirm what was about to take place. And it says, he was transfigured before them, verse three, and his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. I, I thought that was interesting. I mean, they had launderers back then. We don't think of that. It's like taking it to the dry cleaners. They had launderers, but he says, they became so white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Well, what does this mean, transfigured? What is this word actually even speaking about? The word itself is metamorpho, metamorpho. And of course, we know, we get that, that uh, word metamorphose or metamorphosize from this particular Greek word. It means uh, <clears throat> transformed in form. 
transformed in form. So those of you guys that are Transformer fans, you kind of get this. It's transform, it changes shape, it changes form. That's what the word means. Do you want to be able to defend your faith, what you believe in, why you believe it? We've tackled subjects like Jehovah's Witnesses, the origins of Christmas. In honor of the 500th year of the Reformation, we did two-part message on sola scriptura. Is the Bible alone sufficient? Is it our highest authority? Scientology, intriguing topics that are available on the Walk in Truth store at walkintruth.com. There'll be more to come, more exciting things to come. So to get a better feel for what this is really like, let's uh, all turn back to Exodus. Genesis, Exodus, pretty easy to find. Exodus 34. Exodus 34, and I want you to look at verses 29 through 35. Exodus 34, 29 through 35. It says, It came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand as he was coming down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him, God. Verse 30, so when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers in the congregation returned to him, and Moses spoke to them. Verse 32, afterwards, all the sons of Israel came near, and he commanded them to do everything that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take off the veil until he came out. And whenever he came out and spoke to the sons of Israel what he had been commanded, the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, the skin of Moses' face shone. So Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went in to speak with him. So you see a similar experience with Moses, that his face shone like the sun. But there is a difference here. The radiance of Moses came from being in God's presence. It came from the outside in. Jesus' radiance was different. It came from within him, himself, because Jesus is God. The source of the radiance was he himself. Now, when we look at this, we go, wow, that's a miracle, isn't it? I mean, if you saw that, you'd be going, whoa, this is a miracle. But you know, I don't actually see it that way. I don't see that as the miracle. I think the miracle is just the opposite. I think the miracle is that Jesus, when he walked on this earth, could appear in any other form than the glory and the radiance that he always had, that he had with him before he came to earth, that his glory was concealed as he walked around on this earth. To me, that's the miracle. Philippians 2, 5 through 8 says this. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form, morphe, the form of God, did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form, morphe, of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men 
and being found in appearance as man. To me, that's the miracle that God in the flesh veiled that attribute of himself. Why? Well, I think it would have been kind of weird if he'd have walked that way all the time, right? Uh, He had a mission to accomplish, and that mission was for us as men and women to relate to him and who he was, and that would have made it kind of difficult. But you know what's interesting? I think, I truly believe that Jesus looked forward to the time that his glory would be on display again permanently. Now, why do I believe that? Well, the night before the crucifixion, Jesus spoke to the Father and said this. It's in John 17, 1 through 5, if you want to look it up or take a look at it later. John 17, 1 through 5. Jesus said this, Father, the hour has come to glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And these three disciples get to see a glimpse of that glory. That word glory in Greek means doxa, and it's interesting because what it really means is praise, honor, and good opinion. Isn't that interesting? This radiance that comes out is praiseworthy, it's honorable, it's it's of good opinion. This is important as we go along here. Now there's another amazing aspect of this event, and let's look at it in verse four. Verse 4 says, Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. What? Remember, we're investigating this. It's the who here. Who? Moses and Elijah? How is that possible? How is it possible? If you're these three disciples, you're looking at these three guys, and somehow they knew who they were. How is it possible that Jesus is standing here in glory and he's speaking to Moses and Elijah? Well, Luke helps us to understand exactly how this is possible, and this is important to you and I. In Luke 9, uh, verses 30 through 32, you might want to turn over there, Luke 9, 30 through 32. It says this, And behold, two men were talking with him, Jesus, and they were Moses and Elijah. Now, this was recorded in three different Gospels. There's no question about this. Verse 31, who appearing in glory, glory, doxa, the same word, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure. An interesting word there, the departure word there in Greek is exodos, exodos. Gee, where have we heard that from before? It says they were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So we're looking at the facts here. We're digging in. We're saying, what happened? Well, this is what happened. This is who was there. And it says that they were appearing in glory. Now, I believe that this is a reference 
to the glorified state of our bodies when we are in the presence of the Lord. Whether we die on this earth and are immediately ushered into the presence of the Lord or whether the rapture comes and we're immediately in the presence of the Lord. A glorified body, I believe, exactly like what Moses and Elijah had. Now, there can be some discussion about that, and there has been discussion about that. Um, But I think what we see here is that there's an equivalent to the glory that Jesus has and the glory that Moses and Elijah are in. I want you to see that that's a difference between the resurrected body. And again, that's something for you to take back now and study and email Pastor Chris and go, I don't agree with you, here's why. That's okay. But you might dig in and study and go, ooh, I get this. They were appearing in glory. Now, they were having this discussion, Luke tells us, and the discussion was about Jesus' departure. But I don't believe that that's the only reason that they were there. I mean, Jesus could have just visited them at some other time in some other place to have this discussion with them. I believe that they're there for a bigger purpose. And this purpose is to prove that there is life after death. If you listen to the Bible Answer Show on Friday, I challenged some people, if you have a question about whether there is life after death, come to the service this Sunday because we're going to have proof before our very eyes that there is life after death. How can I say that? Well, we have two people here, and they're not ghosts. They're human beings in glorified bodies, and Peter, James, and John recognized who they were. Since Mark is most likely writing what Peter told him, it shows that Peter definitely recognized these men and who they were. Peter himself recalled this whole experience in 2 Peter. It's in 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18. He says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory, doxa, from the Father, from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter recalled this event later, and he says, Look, we're not making up tales here. We saw this happen. And for a Jewish person, if there were three people that saw the same thing, that confirmed the matter. Now, we might ask the question, well, wait here. Okay, so why Moses and, and why Elijah? Well, there's an important message being communicated here. You see, Moses represents the law and the completion of the law. Elijah represents the prophets. In in every comparison, everything in the Old Testament, Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. But there's another reason here. You see, Moses, if you remember, Moses died. Now, nobody knew where he was buried. It says God buried him. But we know that Moses died. He physically died. So the fact that he's appearing here in glory proves the fact that there is life 
after death. Now, what about Elijah? Well, Elijah was different. Elijah, in a sense, represents those who will be caught up in the rapture because Elijah didn't die. It says he was caught up. It actually uses the term a whirlwind. He was caught up. We don't know exactly what that looks like. I, you know, sometimes have thought about that. You know, if you're standing there and you saw Elijah get caught up and he was in a whirlwind, it was like, whoa. But he was caught up. But yet, this was hundreds and hundreds of years before this event, so even if he was caught up alive, if there was any natural thing going on, he would be dead by now. So it proves that there is life beyond this grave. And that's a message that we all need to hear, and that's a message that we need to share. We challenged people on Friday, if you have a question about this, call. Maybe you're skeptical about this, call. We have proof for you. And I believe also that this makes a really strong case for Moses and Elijah as being the witnesses in Revelation chapter 11. Hey, this is Pastor Michael. I want to tell you about a new book that has just come out that I've written. It's called Suit Up, Putting on the Full Armor of God, A Revealing Look at God's Armor. What this book is really about, it's written in a devotional style, and it's written to help you, the believer, to put on the full armor of God. One of the things that the armor of God speaks of is protection. And God has provided you armor to protect you against the typical ways that the enemy attacks. You have a belt of truth because the enemy is a liar. Each piece of armor is custom made to help you in the typical ways that the enemy attacks. Each piece of armor reflects God himself. He's the God of truth. He's righteous. He's the God of peace. All the pieces of the armor point to him. And they point to his provision to you, the believer, because he loves you. The reason God wants to protect you is because he's your father. He knows about the spiritual battle. He knows about the enemy. And he knows how you can be best protected and stand strong against temptation. Suit up, putting on the full armor of God. It's now available on Amazon. I want to get this book in your hands because I believe it's going to help you as a Christian to walk in strength, to know how to put on the armor daily, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh, and to experience more victory in your Christian life. Right now, you can get it on Amazon. It's Suit Up by Pastor Michael Lance. I would urge you to get the book today. Maybe you've been hearing these messages about becoming a new creation in Christ, but you're not sure that you know him. Well, the Bible encourages us that now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. And so don't put it off because the Bible tells us we don't even know what a day will bring. So trust in him now. The Bible says that we need to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead and we will be saved. You know, we see this reality in the scriptures of repentance and faith, turning away from our sin, which is repentance. It literally means to do a 180 and turn away from sin and turn to God to do it his way instead of our way. And faith is a word in Greek, which means to put our trust in, to entrust ourselves to Christ. Now, when we do that, we're trusting in his person, his finished work on the cross and his resurrection and and trusting in him and him alone for our salvation. And that's how you become a Christian. You turn from sin and you turn to God through Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to today's program. If you'd like to listen to this message in its entirety, or if you'd like to visit our church here in Corona, California, visit our website, walkintruth.com.